Hey friends, if you wish you weren't hearing an ad right now, then straight after you listen to this episode, head over to curiositystream.com slash not overthinking. For less than $15 a year, you get access to thousands of high quality documentaries on CuriosityStream, and you'll also get a special link to our podcast feed with all of the ads taken out. My name is Ali, I'm a doctor and YouTuber. I'm Taymor, I'm a data scientist and writer. And you're listening to Not Overthinking, the weekly podcast where we think about happiness, creativity, and the human condition. Hello and welcome back to Not Overthinking. It's another episode. Tamor, how are you doing today? I'm not doing well, mate. I'll be honest with you. I had a really bad sore throat, I think like four days ago, less than that, three days ago when we recorded the last episode and it hasn't really, it's gotten worse. I'm sure you can tell from my voice. A bad sore throat. Bad sore throat. Um, but I just got back from Romania after a couple of days. It was a nice little break. Very beautiful country, countryside kind of vibes. How, how have you been? I've been all right as well. Uh, I also have a bit of a sore throat. I think I uh, gave you the infection that you now have. But then I was at our, our friend's stag night yesterday because I'm a massive lad. Oh, yeah, how was um, that? The, the, that was actually really fun. Um, we ended it off with karaoke um, with a lot of shouting, singing the Pokemon tune, stuff like that. So I realized this morning that I'd lost my voice, which was quite an interesting feeling. I was trying to sing Rewrite the Stars this morning in the car mm. and it just it just didn't work. What was the vibes at the stag night? I've never been to a stag do. Uh, the vibe was, I mean, so it was like a whole weekend affair. It was very sort of lad drinky kind of vibe which oh. is not the sort of thing i usually go for but i thought you know what let's give it a chance let's try and try and engage and like everyone was was, was really nice really friendly and i was kind of surprised at how friendly the lad drinky vibe was because i just like literally never engaged with that before um yeah it was all right it was a uh, stepping outside the comfort zone all right well done to you so what do you want to talk about this week? So this week, I thought we would talk about the concept of status. And um, this was prompted by an article by a chap called Eugene Wei, Eugene Wei, something like that, um, that circulated around the internet a couple of weeks ago. And this article is called Status as a Service. And in this article, he talks about how um, he, he kind of analyzes the success and the growth of different social media companies like Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, um, and the, the, the recent ones. I don't even know what they're like, TikTok and Musical.ly and all, and, and all this stuff. He analyzes the growth of these companies from the lens that, uh, firstly, all humans, i.e. us, we're all status-seeking monkeys, is the phrase that he uses, that i.e. we're trying to trying to see, seek status at all times. Uh, and point number two, that we as humans will try and seek social capital in the most efficient manner possible. And he argues that, especially for the younger generation, that you and I would probably definitely fit into as well. Um, the most efficient ways that we can garner status amongst our peers is through things like social media, because the classic status-seeking games in older people are, you know, your job title or how many positions away from CEO at your company you are or what the car in your driveway is or what nicer neighborhood you live in. But obviously, kids and sort of teens and people in their 20s don't really play those status games as such. And so social media is the arena in which we compete for status. And I thought this was really, really interesting. It was like a a 90 minute read according to pocket and it took me a while to get through it all but at the end of it i felt like wow um and the thing that i that really hit me from this article was thinking to what extent are my own behaviors motivated by this status seeking thing i don't know if you have any preliminary thoughts on the matter so from your summary i mean it doesn't sound that groundbreaking you've said that social media is a bit of a status game i don't know if anyone would disagree with that i think everyone kind of feels that way already so like what are the more kind of interesting nuancey bits of the article I think the interesting bits of the article were how the success of different social media companies very easily mapped onto this theory of 
of status and how the behavior of people using these different apps, when viewed from the status-seeking lens, almost becomes a parody or or something border bordering on ridiculous. Um, like we know people who, for example, when the Snapchat streak thing was a thing, would be you know so efficiently sending snaps to every single person in their friendship groups. So they had like a streak of 300, 500 maintained, and I was like, oh my god, this is incredible. I've never managed to maintain a snap streak of more than like three, but it seems to be a, a common thing that people used to do back in the day when the Snapchat streak thing was a thing. Yeah, I, I remember this, and I actually there have been a few times when I've watched like a young teenager on social media and the speed at which they like power through sending Snapchats and the speed at which they like scroll through their Instagram feed and like things in like a split second without even enough time to look at the photo almost. It's it's unbelievable. Yeah, I mean like um, sometimes that's the speed I, uh, I aspire to triage uh, my email at, <laughs> at, at some level, being able to do it that efficiently. Um, but the article also touched on things like, you know, back in the day, I don't know if you remember, Snapchat had that public best friends feature. Oh yeah. Which yeah. was, which became like the ultimate status game that, you know, wondering whether you were in someone else's best friends list and trying to extrapolate who fancies who based on the, the three best friends list, yeah, all, all exactly. that sort of stuff. Exactly. So I suppose the groundbreaking nature of the article was more for people who are interested in tech and interested in in finding out how these how these companies grow and you know so social media and stuff uh, and viewing it from that lens. But the the thing it got me thinking about was to what extent, as I said, are my own behaviors purely status driven? Okay. So that prompted me to research a little bit more about this. And turns out there's actually a whole sub body of research in psychology about uh, people seeking status, and it's called the status hypothesis. So what is the status hypothesis? Well, I've got it written down here. Uh, the status hypothesis states that the desire for status is a fundamental human motive, and they're defining status as, in inverted commas, respect, admiration, and voluntary deference individuals are afforded by others. So respect, admiration, and voluntary deference. That's, that encompasses a lot of stuff, right? I mean, that, that has everything from the spectrum of like, I'd like to have some friends in the world to I want to be the king and I want people to lick my feet. You know, like that has such a broad range of things, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, it does. Um, in, in, in the article that I'm, I'm, I'm referencing is a 2015 review paper where they analyzed hundreds of other um, actual studies based on this and summarized all the evidence. Um, in this article, they are defining status as distinct from human belongingness and as distinct from financial success. So the I have a few friends definitely comes under the category of human belongingness. The status is more how much I am looked up to by others in my own particular field. Ah, okay. That makes more sense as a definition, I think. And so the article argues that if you look at all the evidence in psychology, you find that people's uh, subjective, well, uh, subjective well-being, their physical health, their mental health, the how they report how happy they are, is all correlated with the social status in their particular peer group. So even if you have you know, good human belonging, like your family loves you, you have some good friends, you'll still want this other stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Saying. There is a fundamental human desire for status seeking. And there have been a few authors in psychology over the years that have argued against this and have, and have argued that status is ultimately just a proxy for belongingness, which, and you know, the need for social contact. But the overwhelming evidence suggests that actually this is a fundamental human motive that we all have. And so I just thought after, after reading this, I just thought it would, it would be interesting to, to actually candidly discuss to what extent our own personal behaviors are actually just examples of status seeking behavior. So um, I was having this discussion with our cousin Hamad, who was over here the other day, and I was trying to get him to admit that a lot of what he does is purely for the uh, for the sake of, of seeking station of, of seeking status. But I wonder if you can uh, you can comment to what to what extent do you think your behaviors, Tamor, are, are, are just purely status driven? Um, I think look, there's obvious stuff like social media and like you know I'm fairly active on Twitter and yeah, I can't lie. I'm sure a large part of that is seeking status. 
I think it's hard when you're doing an activity that happens to also give you status at the same time as fulfilling other things you care about. So for example, I'm trying to start this company right now and you know, startups are pretty cool and stuff nowadays. So I'm well aware that if this goes well, it will sort of bring me some decent status in society. I wouldn't say that's like the primary reason I'm doing it. Uh, it's not like what I consciously think about, you know, when I wake up and, and start sending emails and start writing code, but Wait, is, so you're saying that writing emails is not you just saying, I want status, I'm absolutely desperate for status. Um, yeah, but look, no, 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 no. all right, just give me a sec. I think it's hard to disentangle when, okay, so let me give you a more extreme example to illustrate my point. Let's say it was the Hunger Games, you know, you have to, yeah, you just have to survive, you have to kill all the other people, or they're going to kill you, right? And obviously, whoever wins the Hunger Games is going to get a lot of status as well. Now, if you are in the Hunger Games, you're one of the 12 people, right? If someone is like, yeah, I want to win the Hunger Games, Ali, uh, they come on your podcast mid-games, I don't know, they call care package, microphone shows up. With yeah, yeah, all of that stuff. <laughs> all of that stuff. Yeah. And uh, and you're on the other end saying, huh, you status-seeking monkey. <laughs> Why are you trying to survive? Um, I think it would be unreasonable for you to say that, oh, you're just doing this, you're seeking status because okay. they're just doing that for survival. Yeah, right? fine. I completely take your point. That makes sense. And uh, the point I'm trying to make about for example, me trying to start this startup right now, is that it's somewhere on the spectrum from the Hunger Games where the only choice is survival and that happens to come with status. And the other end of the spectrum is, I don't know, no no status at all. Uh, well, I think the other end of the spectrum would be something that is purely a status-driven behavior and does not have any actual real-world benefit. Um, an, an example that the author gives in this particular article, "Status as a Service," is apparently in the in the app Musically, you uh, you're supposed to like film yourself doing dance moves and lip syncing to popular songs, um, and apparently that's the sort of thing that preteens absolutely love. Um, preteens, if you're listening to this, I apologize if this is offending you, but apparently this is the sort of thing that you guys like to do based on the analysis from this guy who's into social media. Apologies, I don't know anything about this, but that seems to me to be a purely status-driven behavior. There is no survival benefit conferred by that. But then I suppose there is the added issue that actually status amongst your peers in terms of like the social friendship groups that are like very, very apparent in secondary school, that is almost a survival game. It's almost like the Hunger Games when you're vying for attention amongst your peers and, and stuff like that. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think we, yeah, we always think about like core basic needs in terms of like the physical stuff, like food, water, etc. But yeah, looking back, if you're like a preteen or like a young teenager in school, the school playground is almost all you know, you know, that's like your entire life arena. <laughs> And so... I was basically being in the Hunger Games from like 9am to 3.35pm, <laughs> competing for status in this in this grand arena. Yeah, I, I, look, I don't use TikTok or Musical.ly, so I can't really comment on those. Um, but back to your original question, I think it's hard because there's always this spectrum. And even on Twitter, for example, I feel like I've definitely found some human belonging. I feel like I definitely get other non-status benefits, but I'll be quite frank and say that I am in part doing it because of the status that comes with it. Again, with a startup, I'm sure to some extent I would, I am doing it because of the status, because for example, if, if it sort of had negative status associated with it, would I be doing it? I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. Okay. So for, so for example, a startup in the adult film industry that was exploiting people would have no, would, would have negative status associated with it, but would be probably positive financially. You probably wouldn't do it. That's true. But I'm also not like inherently interested in that stuff. You know, if, if it was oh, like, all right. <laughs> If it was like the same company, the same idea and everything that I'm working on now, except 
let's let's just say that everyone thought people who cared about probabilistic modeling were massive nerds and didn't deserve any friendship would i still be doing it i don't know okay but you've done maths as, as a degree so <laughs> what about you i feel like you have a bit of an out in the social media pissing contest because you've sort of transcended the ranks of using social media like a normal person and you've kind of turned it into basically a job and so when you do stuff like you know outrageous stuff that's obviously begging for likes when you post pictures with our mom saying oh my god i love my mom whatever whatever caption you put on these pictures like so transparently fishing for likes it's like i can't even fault you for it because it's just your hustle you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly it's, it's just got to be done and that's kind of what I, what I say to my friends whenever i get the phone out they're like oh ali put the phone away i'm like guys it's got to be done <laughs> you just got to accept it that is something I, I i do think about a lot and i i agree i have i have that i have the best out possible that you know I'm actually generating money from this thing and therefore anything that gets me likes ultimately gets me attention and attention ultimately translates to monetary and other other rewards further down the line so to speak right <laughs> but yeah for the, for that reason I don't think this status seeking thing is inherently negative like it's not an inherent negative to be in the business of seeking status but I think w some realms in which I wouldn't think status seeking is the main objective. I've, I've started to think that maybe it might be. So for example, I recently bought a new bag that I can take on trips for the weekend. Um, and it's quite like a, a fancy-ish bag and it's the, the most money I've ever spent on a bag. I don't want to signal too hard here because, you know, that's, that's, that's not the point of this, of this thing. But the story I told myself, the, the, the way I justified that particular purchase was in terms of function. It was in terms of thinking that, okay, I need a bag for the weekend. Every time I go home to St. Albans for the weekend or go on a weekend trip, I have a choice between my small rucksack or my massive carry-on suitcase and I need a hybrid middle ground. I need to have this many pockets for my laptop, the iPad and the iPad Pro. Again, sorry if this comes across as signaling. Um, but I, the, the argument that I told myself was one of function. And then when I read the status thing, I was like, ooh, is it actually just one of function? To what, like, to what extent am I just trying to signal that I'm a stylish sort of guy by buying this sort of bag? Yeah, I think this, this goes back to the same kind of spectrum thing that I was saying where, you know, you happen to get status for doing something that you also want to do for other reasons. And it's hard to disentangle whether you're doing it for those other reasons or whether you're doing it for the status. So one way of potentially disentangling this is a concept I first came across in, I think it was in critical thinking in A-level. Oh. Um, I, 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 I feel like it was like Rawls, John Rawls or someone. He was some kind of philosopher or something, wasn't he? Never heard of the guy. Okay, well, I, I think he was involved in like utilitarianism and stuff like that. He um, can't be that good, to be honest. Probably not if you haven't heard of him. Uh, but his, his whole theory was, um, it was called the veil of ignorance, I think. No, that's another one. Um, that's an entirely different one, which I think was John Rawls. Uh, this other theory I'm thinking about basically is a thought experiment. And we'll put in the show notes where it's referenced because I really can't remember. But it's basically a thought experiment. Oh, I first read about it in Durham Brown's Happy. And it was in a discussion about things, you know, things that we buy into to signal status to other people, like, you know, designer handbags and all this sort of stuff. And the thought experiment is that imagine a world where you were the only one and there was no one else in the world. Would you still buy this particular thing? And I think that's a good way of, of thinking about these sorts of purchases. And so, for example, for me, when I think about getting a new MacBook Pro I, because, you know, I want a, a faster computer to edit my videos on, I think, yeah, you know, follow, following this hypothetical thought experiment, if I was the only one in the world and I was making videos, I would still want a fast computer. I am not buying this computer because of it's, it's a status symbol. Yeah. But then, for example, a few weeks ago, I was in an Apple store and I currently have an Apple Watch and I've got like, the, you know, one of the default black straps that come with it and then that comes with it. But at the time, I was wearing my blue shorts and I had a gray t-shirt on and I was like, 
hmm, this black strap doesn't really match my grey t-shirt and blue shorts. You know what I need? I need a blue strap for my Apple Watch. And then I was looking at blue straps for the Apple Watch. I asked, I asked the fellow at the Apple Store, mate, how much does this cost? And he was like, oh, mate, you're not going to like it. That one's 150 quid. And I was like, 150 quid for one of these blue leather straps? Is that it? <laughs> I was expecting at least 500. Um... But then I realized that, you know, should I try and buy the strap? Should I not buy the strap? And I put myself into this mindset of if there were no one else in the world, would I really spend 150 pounds on a strap for my watch so that the blue of the strap could match the blue of my shorts? And the answer was absolutely not. And I'm proud to say I have not yet bought that strap. (laughs) Okay, so you're saying this with some pride. You know, you're proud of yourself. You think you've done a good thing here. I've done a good thing by not buying the strap. Yeah, I think. All you've really done is deprive yourself of some, a little pleasure hit of like, ah. I'm so trendy. I have my, what was it, blue shorts, gray t-shirt, and now blue strap. <laughs> why Why do you feel good about that? I mean, you've just deprived yourself of some potential pleasure, happiness, whatever. So I feel good about that because the story I tell myself about the things that I purchase is that I'm purchasing them exclusively for form and aesthetic is only a very minor side effect as in, I want to optimize for aestheticness. Like, I'm not going to buy a backpack that looks really crap, even if it is got all the all the pockets I want. But I don't want the aesthetics to be the main reason why I buy that bag. And I certainly don't want a brand label to be the main reason why I buy that bag. Probably because internally and now explicitly, I, I, I have some kind of judgmental thing where people flashing off kind of big designer brands, I would look at and think, oh, I'm not comfortable with that sort of behavior. So the fact that I am avoiding this makes me feel happy inside. I feel you. Of course, I understand. Now... I think there's a bit of a trend among sort of techie types nowadays to go for sort of very plain, non-branded clothing, non-branded items as far as possible. Go for like a very simple look to almost signal that you are not playing the normal status game. (laughs) But in doing so, you're kind of playing the counter status game, which is really just a status game. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I can see that. And especially with the whole rise of minimalism and stuff. One criticism of it is that it's a very... I sort of uh, it's a very upper middle class way of signaling status in a different sort of way that you know the fewer things I have in my house the more well off I am or the more you know aesthetic or stylist or stylistic or, or whatever I am and there's that popular cartoon that that went, that went famous in from some some newspaper where it's, uh, it's 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 got a photo of some some woman sitting in a room with just a sofa or just a desk or something and someone comes in and thinks and thinks Wow, you must have a lot of money to have all this all this empty space. That's pretty good, yeah. Yeah, but this uh, yeah, this whole like minimalism culture, simplicity culture and stuff among sort of the the tech elite is a bit of a meme nowadays and like you agree you you are still playing a status game there. Just a more pretentious one. Yeah, fine, you're right. I'm playing the status game that I don't care about status games. <laughs> Checkmate. <laughs> You've got me. Lock me up, your honor. I do apologize. Um is so that's the thing that I I don't quite get though. Like, should we be trying to avoid these status games? Like something obvious, like, you know, we've got a friend who enjoys spending, you know, he makes he makes a few grand over the summer holidays by teaching and by doing private tutoring and stuff. And then he would go to Harrods or Selfridges and buy a 500 pound, you know, pair of sunglasses that he's only going to wear once. Or he'd buy a 600 pound pair of shoes so that he can photograph it on a Snapchat story and then not is not going to wear for two years. Can we both agree that that's probably a suboptimal status game or is this me being a judgmental prick again? I think there's a there's a sort of pattern that I've I often come back to where like the choice is between some kind of hedonism where you're sort of giving into your desires versus 
not doing so. And the reason is because typically hedonism is unsustainable. And like, if you were to keep giving in to these desires, then it will lead to greater unhappiness in the long term, right? For example, I don't know, being addicted to unhealthy food or drugs or whatever, you know, like it's fun right at the start, but the more and more you give in, the worse your life will become in the long term. Okay, yeah, yeah, I can go more to that. And so like the status stuff, if it's if it's sustainable, if it's like, you know, I can actually keep this up for the rest of my life uh, and I'm not sort of uh, prematurely ending my life <laughs> because of it, then there's no, there's no harm in it at all. It's free pleasure, it's free, free like happiness, whatever you want to call it. If it's a sustainable kind of status seeking, go for it, man. If it's if it's the kind of status seeking that leads to ultimate discontentment eventually, you know, the kind of status seeking where perhaps I suppose perhaps kind of the uh, the uh, the theory of hedonic adaptation, like you know, where this new thing that you have then becomes the new normal, and therefore in order to get that dopamine hit again, you then have to spend twice as much on a pair of shoes, uh, or then you know. At that point, you've maxed out on how much money you can spend on a pair of shoes. At that point, you start getting into fancy watches and you start spending more and more money on those. And yeah, fine. As you said, if you can sustain that, if you've got the sort of income and the sort of lifestyle that can comfortably sustain that forever, then by all means, go for it. But I'd probably argue that most people do not have the sort of lifestyle, or rather, even if they did, you probably don't want the sort of lifestyle where you're having to keep on purchasing more and more things in order to make you happy. I suspect, as everyone who's ever researched happiness suggests that, you know, it should ideally come from within rather than from these external methods of validation. Yeah, I totally agree with that. So I, I guess I'd like to uh, amend my, what I said earlier about, like, not giving into pure hedonism when it's unsustainable or when it's stopping you from achieving deeper satisfaction, happiness, pleasure through other means. And I guess, I guess most people would agree that there is deeper happiness, satisfaction, whatever, to be found in different games that don't involve seeking status in this kind of way. Or at least that don't involve seeking status as their primary objective. Because as we've established, seeking status happens to be a secondary side effect of a lot of other productive activities. Yeah. Social media is really difficult for me. And I imagine other people who don't do it as a hustle. Because every time... So for example, I was just in Romania for a few days. And like the scenery was really nice. It was really pretty. Um, I thought, oh, this would be a nice thing to post on Instagram. And every time I think oh, this would be a nice thing to post on Instagram. I then sort of have this whole internal monologue and an internal battle where I'm like, okay, why do I really want to post this on Instagram? <laughs> Let's have a think about this. And then I think, okay, hmm, this is a nice, you know, this would be a nice picture. Maybe some of my friends, when they see that, they'll get some kind of pleasure, satisfaction, reward out of it because they just saw a nice picture. And then I think, hmm, okay, what if one of my friends posted a similar picture? How would I feel about that? And then I'll think, hmm, well, depending on the friend, I might feel like, oh, cool, he or she is in this place. Yeah, good for them. That looks really nice. Or I might think, ah, I don't really know this person anymore. Um, I don't really care for this. Let's skip it. I, to us, I don't think there's anyone. I don't think there'd be a case where I'd think, oh, man, I'm really, like, jealous of this person. Or, like, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say there's ever a scenario where I get like a negative value from experiencing someone else's social media feed or whatever. Um, and so I often conclude that it's sort of neutral at worst. Okay. And then by the time you've concluded this, you've long missed the yeah, spot. Yeah. And then the my, my friends have left. I'm now like lost <laughs> yeah. in a foreign country. And, uh, <laughs> but at least you've got your Instagram photo. Exactly. You can get those, you can get all those likes. Um, so you touched on an interesting point here, and that is this whole beef that people have with social media, especially when the word social media is used by people older 
like an older generation of people, it, it tends to be, we don't like social media because it promotes a culture of comparison and it makes you see how, what, what kind of lifestyle other people, people are leaving. And that makes you feel bad about your own sort of lifestyle. But you're saying that that doesn't, that you don't really get affected by that. Like if you see someone, you know, on hashtag Fitspiration, uh, CC last week's episode, uh, you're saying that you wouldn't, you wouldn't feel bad about that. I love Fitspiration, but I think, I think maybe I'm just in a good place in my life right now. I mean, there was a few times when I was younger where this would be like a major influence on me and i'd like see stuff on social media and feel like oh man my life is rubbish i'm really jealous of this person i really um, like when i can't i can't imagine you ever feeling that thank you uh no i think when i was a teenager i was pretty like status <laughs> i was hot yeah, yeah yeah trying trying to be cool in school was the main focus of ages 11 to 16 for me oh i could i can remember your, your phase in year eight where you suddenly discovered hair gel for the first time <laughs> I remember that. And you would be like spiking up your hair and then kind of taking selfies. Oh, back in the back in the day, you'd be taking selfies. No, I, no, did I? There's definitely selfies of you just kind of, just, there's definitely selfies of you just kind of sort of semi-pouting with your, with, you know, your three strands of hair sticking up as it was, as, as was cool back in like, I don't know, 2004, 2005. Yeah, that's probably true. And, and like, like I said, honestly, like the main focus of my life during that period was to try and be cool at school. It was, it was looking back, it was ridiculous how much this matters to me and how much energy I put into like trying to do this. So I'm curious to, uh, what specific strategies did you use at the time to try and try and be cool in school? Because I remember like, this was never a thing for me. Like I knew I wasn't cool, but my way of maximizing my status amongst my peers was by getting into like web design and coding and being, being a cool ICT, ICT nerd. That was how I maximized my status. <laughs> what yeah. about you? <laughs> how did that go for you, mate? <laughs> Maximum status ICT. <laughs> yeah, man. I <laughs> see. Loved it. I became an IT prefect. I got in with the IT kids. Oh, I, I, I got a, an, an invite for Gmail from one of the year 12 ICT prefects back when it was still an invite only service. So, Lad. yeah. Anyway, uh, what specific tactics did you use that I should have used when I was 11 to 16 to be more cool? All right, I'll lay it out for you. If there's any, right. if there's any secondary school kids listening, pay attention. Now. This, this is how you be cool, right? This is the self-help section of this particular podcast episode. Step one is you Google for how to be cool. Now, back in the day, there was a there wasn't much great content out there on the internet around the topic. You'd land on something like WikiHow, oh, classic, and it would talk about how to walk cool. That was a big thing. Uh, I like, look, we're joking about this now. But at the time, I was like, oh, damn. Oh, damn. I had a walk cool. I'm getting my notebook out, you know? I was there taking notes. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> One foot in front of the other. <laughs> um, that was like a serious thing. Okay. I wanted to like have a cooler walk. Okay. And how's, how's, how's that gone for you? Just to kind of uh, evaluate this particular, this particular method? Um, I haven't had any compliments on my walk. I also haven't had any... What's the opposite of a compliment? Uh, insult, not quite insult. Criticism. Yeah, no one's criticized my walk. Um, I've so, had my walk criticized by by a mum a few times. Really? It's like, Ali, one foot in front of the other, walk straight. <laughs> 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 Ali, imagine a straight line, walk along that straight line. And I'm like, okay, fine. And then like internally I always think, oh, I want to rebel against this, but I know she's right. <laughs> then then I, I, have to, I have to walk in a straight line and then I feel like I've lost because I'm, I'm begging my mum. <laughs> That's the kind of internal monologue that I go through these days. Well, we, we all have our battles. We do. Yeah, I mean, look, it was, it was stupid stuff like how you walk i remember tie length was a big factor like shorter tie is definitely cooler having a full length or normal length tie was highly uncool oh so that's actually the, gone the complete opposite direction like I, I i've never seen anyone with a tie other than entirely normal length like since about six form onwards oh, okay that's cool uh then i think yeah yeah just like clothing was a big part of it 
pencil cases nah that was a different kind of game <laughs> that was a different kind of status game yeah <laughs> amongst your nerd friends <laughs> yeah the one you were probably playing yeah, at the I, time, was, mate. <laughs> I was 100% I had like one of those uh, playing it cool pencil cases so yeah clearly trying to, say, trying to signal something there nice but yeah look there was all this stupid stuff but I think like in general I think once you're out of that phase it's easy to forget just how important things like that are when you're younger and I think we like in general we often just trivialize the feelings of kids and younger people because like you know compared to adult problems or whatever huh, you think you have a tough kid i got like uh, <laughs> I, I got, got a mortgage wife. to pay yeah i got a mortgage to pay <laughs> you got on, uh, <laughs> and you only got 12 instagram likes on that post yeah it's it's so easy to like trivialize uh yeah kids feelings and kids experiences because on an absolute level they sort of pale in comparison to i don't know adult challenges or whatever but relative to, you know, the life you've lived up to the age of 12, whatever's happening on the playground or at school is a massive deal. It's like, it's like all the whole of your life. And so like, this was a major focus of my life, these stasis games. So this, this is something that I've always been interested in exploring with, with my friends who were cool in school, i.e. the sorts of friends who, for example, had boyfriends and girlfriends and would go to parties and stuff in their teenage years. Um, because that was like a, a whole aspect of the human experience that I haven't really experienced because I was sitting on my computer playing World of Warcraft and, and learning how to make websites um, in order to maximize my, my social status. But it's always really interesting hearing just how much drama in inverted commas went on when they were like 14, 15, you know, I've got a very close friend who was like, oh, you know, she'd broken up with a boyfriend at age 14 and then at age 15 got ostracized from the friendship group and then at age 16 got in with the wrong crowd and had all this like teenage angst. And I've just never really experienced teenage angst as a thing before. And I kind of, in a way, feel sad that I missed out on that aspect of the human experience. I don't know if you've had any similar feelings. Yeah, I didn't have much teenage drama. And I've also, I also find it quite interesting to hear from people who were in different parts of the, the social hierarchy in school. And I was catching up with a friend a couple of weeks ago who was um, definitely on the opposite end of the spectrum to me in, for most of school where he was very much like quite cool bit of like a gangster that kind of thing <laughs> he was a bit of a gangster wasn't he? a bit of a gangster <laughs> yeah. yeah shirt on tuck short tie oh a bit of a g a bit of a g top one undone yeah nice. and uh yeah it was interesting to hear him basically i think he largely admitted that there was a lot of status gaming going on even among the cool kids and looking back he actually quite strongly disliked a lot of the people in his group his so-called friends at the time um but just kind of went along with things because you know they were the cool kids that's what they do um but he didn't really like a lot of these people deep down. Um, so I, yeah, I think like status games all around. So going back to this social media thing, because I, uh, I think y you touched on an interesting point that I've been recently thinking about as well, about this whole thing of, you know, being worried to take an Instagram photo because you're like, oh, I don't know if I'm really just, just playing a status game here versus am I actually adding any kind of value? I wonder what the heuristic is for deciding whether or not to do something like, like that. Um, so in, in Austin Kleon's Show Your Work, a book that I, I, I love to reference, he talks about how you should share your work, share what you're working on, share your process, share your behind the scenes. But he says that the question you should ask yourself is, will this be useful or helpful or interesting to at least one other person in the world? And I think that's a good way of thinking about it because what, he's, what he says in that book is that, you know, don't post a photo of your latte, but post a photo of what you're working on while you're drinking, on, uh, while you're drinking that latte. And I think that's potentially a, a useful heuristic to have. I don't know. I think that breaks down a lot on social media. Hmm. For example, like if I'm posting an Instagram story, I can pretty, you know, like a really close friend of mine, for example, I can count on him or her, him, him, <laughs> <laughs> uh, to, uh, yeah, to like get some value out of it. Oh, cool. You know, he's there, whatever. Okay. So that's fine. It's uh, no, fine. no, no. Yeah. That, that's fine on its okay. own. But there also could be a number of people I'm trying to like signal to 
uh, in oh, an unhealthy way. You're having a look at who's, who's viewed your Instagram story so you can be like, oh. <laughs> That's exactly right. Uh, and so like, it's very easy to satisfy the, yeah, on social media amongst your friends, it's very easy to satisfy the one person finds value in this, even though there, are, there could be large numbers of people who are, you are trying to play sort of status games with or signal to or trying to make them jealous or whatever. So I guess what we're saying is that perhaps <laughs> the, the way forward is, is to just take a very libertarian view of this and be like, you know what? If what you're doing doesn't hurt anyone, then it's fine. Keep on doing it. And the nice thing about social media and, and the way that I actually um, talked myself into doing the YouTube thing was partly that I'm not forcing this down anyone's throat. If they do not want to follow me, they don't have to. And this this is actually partly why I was not keen to post and I'm still never keen to do any self-promotion on my personal Facebook account because those are people who are just friends with me because they're friends in real life. They haven't asked to get updates about you know my YouTube or what life as a junior doctor is like or, or, or any of that. Whereas people who subscribe to my YouTube channel, who click on videos, I, I know that they are there voluntarily and therefore I do not feel bad about a single thing that I post. And therefore, you know, I, I, I recently released today a 28 minute long video of me just sitting in front of a camera and talking about what my uh, elderly medicine placement was like. And before posting this, I was, even, I was, I was semi tempted to not post it at all or to like try and make another channel to, to put it over there. But then I was like, you know what? People, I'm, I'm, I'm telling people up front what this is about. They can see it's 28 minutes long. If they want to watch it, that's fine. If they don't want to watch it, that's okay. And I think the same applies to Instagram stories. Like if you're the sort of person who posts a ton of Instagram stories, that's fine. You do what you want. People are going to follow you if they feel like it. If you have zero watchers, then maybe it's time to not post Instagram stories and just take photos for your own camera roll instead. But as long as what you're doing has at least an audience of one, then I think that's a reasonable way of thinking about it. I think the, the kind of stuff we've talked about so far, like the kind of stuff like social media and for example, you're standing in the playground very temporarily. Uh, these are very like short timescale status games. Um, and it's probably worth thinking about the much more long timescale status games, which are probably a lot more implicit because they're on such a long timescale and they've sort of seeped into our worldview and our sort of uh, value compasses. Um, so things like getting a good job, going to a good university, ultimately having a nice house and kids. Like, is, is, is that what you mean? Like, for example, the getting a good job thing is one of the one of the classic status games that adults play. But it's the status game that kids are taught to play from the age of like six onwards, where you're like, you know, you want to study hard in school because eventually then you'll get a good job. Right. Yeah, I guess I mean that kind of stuff. And look, of course, all, all of this is like very much, you know, it happens to give you status, but it also happens to be very valuable yeah, aside from that. It's got real world instrumental value to have it ha have a good job. For yeah, example. for sure. But I think it's still worth trying to break out of the status game side of it. Um, and I think there's definitely a push, especially in sort of hot box environments like university where you're sort of competing with your peers in lots of different ways often in meaningless games like getting top of the class and things like that in these kind of hot box environments where you kind of lose perspective on what's going on outside and so everything inside seems like the most important thing in the world like if you look back on the kinds of scandals in inverted commas that happen at university it's completely bizarre looking from the outside now you know like Occasionally when you kind of see what what what's going on sort of in student newspapers and stuff and then kind of things people are keying up a fuss about. When we were on the inside, that stuff seemed so normal. Like, oh my god, yeah. This is a huge deal. <laughs> no pizza in the JCR meeting. <laughs> my goodness. This is unbelievable. Um but yeah, I think when you're in like a hot box environment like that, it's very easy to get caught up in these status games and lose sight of the bigger picture. And like often in these environments like university and school you do make decisions that affect the rest of your life. And if you're making these decisions at the time, primarily because of the status game, rather than the sort of 
underlying, more uh, wholesome, let's say, reason for doing them, then it can't be a good thing. It, can sh- it, it will surely lead to suboptimal outcomes. Oh, yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. Um, and I suppose what you've just said about this hot, hot, hot bod. No, not hot bod, <laughs> hot bed. <laughs> like, I get that a lot. I, I don't blame you. I've been reading a lot of Fitzpiration recently. Um, I suppose what you said about these hotbed environments is, is very similar to what we talked about with, you know, kids in secondary school for the first time, how at the time it seems like such a massive deal. And we shouldn't, for example, trivialize the experiences of an 11-year-old and the struggle to fit in. But equally, we shouldn't trivialize the experience of, you know, the fact that the, there's no pizza in the JCR meeting because that was clearly a big deal back in the day. But I think this this idea that we should all recognize when our decisions are being shaped by the status-seeking game rather than the more wholesome game of life. Yeah, we should, yeah, exactly. We, we should take that into account. And therefore, this is something that, and therefore, this is something that even 11, an 11 or 12-year-old can therefore appreciate. Like, I've, I've had like one or two emails from people who are being like, I'm, I'm 11 and I love your videos and they give me a lot, a lot of motivation to study medicine. So even if you are an 11-year-old reading this and then even then recognizing to what extent your behavior is shaped by status games is only going to be a good thing because then at least when you're making decisions about your life or decisions about what you want to do with your time, you can, you at least have that lens with which to view things. Like when I was 11, like up, up until like very recently, I just didn't even have the concept of that, you know, I'm trying to trying to seek some kind of status as a, as a concept in my mind. And therefore I wouldn't have known to use it as a factor or to counteract it as a factor when making decisions about my life. I may well have gone for medicine because of the status seeking game associated with it, but I would, I wouldn't have known it at the time because I didn't even have that vocabulary used to describe it. Yeah, exactly. I remember there was a, a year nine English lesson in which I can't remember how this was relevant, but our teacher put on a documentary uh, by Alain de Botton, no oh. less entitled status anxiety and this was like my first exposure to like a meta look at the human experience it was the first like time i'd observed or been exposed to introspection in general i guess uh where like alain de Botton talks about how um you know there's american dream that you know anyone can like achieve things and make it big by their own hard work and that there's sort of two sides to that coin that if you aren't in a good position in life it's because you didn't work hard and you deserve your bad position and so on um and this if i look back on the things that made me feel like i've leveled up my thinking and my mind watching this documentary in year nine was definitely one of them because it sort of gave me this yeah the language and kind of exposed me to this new way of thinking of like looking more inward and and thinking about things in that way um the documentary is called status anxiety pretty good watch (coughs) but yeah i think this uh, I think I think especially at the university thing this is actually a really big problem because I was uh, I was reading an article earlier this week by a chap who he he studied physics at university or something like a really good school in the US and then he went to like graduate school to study physics and did like some physics research and stuff um, and then a few years after this he was sort of re- reflecting on his time at university and he was kind of wondering like why did I do all that and while he was there he like he cared an awful lot about grades like he really wanted to be top of the class. He really wanted to sort of do the best research, you know, work with the best academics. Um, and he, he sort of came to realize that I never really cared about physics anyway. Um, I wasn't that interested in it. I just kind of fell into it because it seemed like, you know, a prestigious thing to do or whatever. And then once you're in that university environment where, you know, all around you are these zero-sum games where, you know, only one person can come top of the class or only one person can get this... Uh, the scholarship or whatever, even, yeah, you almost go down that flow of the river without realizing. Uh, And so I think he calls it the mimetic trap um, about how like we we're naturally sort of inclined to mimic what other people are doing and get involved in these 
competitive games with our peers. Um, and so even though physics didn't really mean anything to him, he wasn't that interested in it. He worked really, really hard to try and like beat his peers and get the best positions and so on. Um, and he realized that that was in the grand scheme of things, a complete waste of his time and a complete waste of years of his life. Um, and I think a lot of us get trapped in that. Like I remember in second year, in second year, it seemed like everyone was doing internships in like finance and banking and things like that. And I felt, yeah, I wasn't that into that stuff. I didn't really care about it that much, but I felt this pressure of like, oh man, everyone else is like doing these internships. I better like, you know, try and do one too. Um, and so I did, you know, I dabbled in that stuff for a bit and, and sort of realized it wasn't really for me. Um, but I knew that all along and I just kind of went with it. I sort of fell into this mimetic trap of like, oh man, all my other peers are doing this thing. It seems high status. Like I want that status, you know, I should probably do it too. Yeah. And we'll definitely link that article in the, in the show notes. I want to have read this myself. Um, and this reminds me of two things. And then I, I think we can, we can draw this to a close. So the first one is, uh, I've recently been reading a lot of, uh, <coughs> Articles about productivity on a website called Forte Labs. What a uh, surprise! You're reading on. <laughs> what a surprise! That's completely novel. Um, and the actually something novel that I did come across was the was the idea of doing like an, an annual review. Like it's a pretty standard feature of productivity systems that you should have a weekly review where you're reviewing your to do list and your emails and all that stuff. And then you know some people have a monthly review where they're looking at okay wh- how how has my life been for the last four weeks? What are my commitments for the next four weeks? That sort of thing. But I came across this idea of doing an annual review where you're taking a more sort of bird's eye look at your life and asking what are the things I'm actually aiming for, actively trying to work out what sort of lifestyle you want to go for and the reasons why you want to go for that particular lifestyle. I think this all sounds like something that could be mitigated by having a a decent annual review system um, where you can be fully honest with yourself about exactly why you're doing what you're doing. Because this physicist guy, you know, 10 years down the line, having done a PhD in physics or whatever, suddenly he realizes that, oh crap, why was I doing this in the first place? So that's the that's point number one. And point number two is that kind of on the note of this whole exam thing, um, there was one actually piece of game-changing advice that I came across in my final year. And this was through our mutual friend, Lucia, uh, who has a grandmother living in, in America. Uh, and this grandmother is, is all, all, like, very supportive and stuff and, and sent her like a, a very sweet text message that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read out. I'm sure she won't mind. Um, <coughs> and the message goes... I've been thinking about you for days and wondering how your studying is going and when your exams are. Are you feeling ready or just tired and grumpy? It's such a huge pressure. I do hope you can keep it in perspective. It's not necessary to be be top of the class. You'll still get to do the type of medicine you want wherever you want. It only matters that you have a family who loves you and dear friends who support you all unconditionally. And here's the, here's the good bit. You know, this is me, me pretending to be Lucia's grandma. No one will ever know or probably care how well you do in these exams. It sounds crazy to say, but I think it helps to approach exams as a fun, personal game. Just seeing what you remember, and then when it's over, just let it go. Happy. Finished. And the thing that I really took away from this was this idea of approaching exams as a fun game that you play with yourself. And, you know, it's not about anyone else. It's not about competing with your peers. It's just a fun little game. I'm playing with myself to see how much I can remember. And I think that goes a very long way towards curing the status anxiety felt by exams in particular. Yeah, I think it's just worth noting that I think we all rely on like heuristics to make sense of the world, which is very complicated. And in a sense, status is kind of one of those heuristics where, you know, you don't, if you, you don't, you, you don't have to like think about the deeper meaning behind anything, what you really want or whatever. And you can just try and pursue status. And to be honest, at different points in your life, it can have different effects. For example, you could do a lot worse than 
try and achieve academic status during school and get in, get into a good university and so on. Like that, that's not a terrible thing at the end of the day, if you have played the status game until you're 18 and gotten into a good school, which will sort of increase your chances at a more comfortable life for you and your family and stuff. So, and so on. I mean, sure. If, if, the, if that's a particular way of play, if that's your particular way of playing that status game, that's fine. But I'm sure we can, we can think of people whose particular, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, but I'm sure we can think of instances in which people are playing a playing the same status game in school, but their method for achieving status tends to be by trying to be cool or doing drugs to get in with these 17-year-old cool kids when you're 12. You know, things like that. There are a lot of ways to make the status game of school not work out in your favor. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, I, I guess what I'm just trying to say is that, like, if you're doing something that's beneficial for you, that also happens to bring you status then don't worry too much about it. For example, if the only thing that's going to motivate me to stay fit and go to the gym is... <coughs> if the only thing that's going to motivate me to stay fit and go to the gym and eat healthily is the fact that I want to be more attractive to the opposite sex, if that's the only thing that's going to make me do it, I could do a whole lot worse than just giving in to that, you know? Okay, yeah, I take your point. That's a useful heuristic or rule of thumb to follow in, in that case, and you shouldn't beat yourself too, uh, up too much about it. But I think, I guess what we've been arguing for this whole podcast, if we do have any conclusions at all, is that it's worth, it's worth A, having the vocabulary to describe this and, and B, recognizing that status seeking is a fundamental human behavior. And we're, and we're, and we're all going to be doing it to varying degrees, whether it's our Hunger Games thing, whereby survival happens to confer a status benefit, all the way up to lip syncing to tracks on Musical.ly, where it can be difficult to argue that that confers any benefit other than status. We're, we are all playing a status game in some form or another. But it's, I think what we're arguing for is that it's worth recognizing that and being at least semi-introspective about it and making sure that when, when we are making major life decisions that we're, do, we're trying to minimize the role of status in that and trying to get at the more wholesome the more wholesome meaning the more wholesome reason behind it yeah that sounds like a good summary cool should we wrap this up then um do we have any insights or funny things that you discovered this week <coughs> i don't know how funny this is i thought it was semi-funny um, but I've kind of noticed that when I'm going through a tough time in life in general, I'm usually pretty like stoic about it or whatever. You know, I don't let it get me down too much. But when I'm feeling a little bit ill, when I'm feeling a bit physically under the weather, I, I start feeling so sorry for myself. I start thinking, oh man, this is so unfair. Like what, why, what have I done to deserve this? You know, why does my eye hurt for no reason? Why does my back hurt? Why is my throat sore? I've just woken up. <laughs> This is, you know, the universe is a mean place. And I, I just feel really sorry for myself when I'm physically ill. Uh, I, can, I can relate to that. As can evidently lots of people on the internet, because you tweeted about this very thing. And I thought this was a very good tweet. And that tweet was partly what encouraged me to think about this whole status game, because I went down the thing, oh, this is a good tweet. This is going to get lots of likes. This is going to be good for status seeking. And then the whole game of Twitter being a status seeking game kind of came to my mind. But yeah, we'll link the tweet in the show notes. You should definitely have a look at it. You should follow Tamer on Twitter. You should like that tweet. It'll help increase his social status amongst his peers. Cool. I guess that's it. Thanks a lot for listening and see you next week. Bye.